All right. What's up, Salt Company? You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Some riveting conversations out there. Some riveting. Uh, Sam is a big fan of Party in the USA. I don't know. How many other Party in the USAs are out there? Nice. That's awesome. Oh, I'm so excited to go to Iowa next week. But you know what we say at the University of Minnesota, who hates Iowa? There it is. Okay, we don't actually hate Iowa. We love them. It's going to be great, but we kind of do. All right. Uh, hey, if you don't know me, my name is Austin, and it's great to be with you. Hey, guys. Stoked to be here tonight, and I thought I'd just start out with a little story, if that's cool with you guys. Uh, the year is... 2010 or 2015, somewhere in that chunk. I'm actually not quite sure, but young Austin is stoked because his parents just got him a basketball hoop that would connect to the top of the garage door. Anybody else have one like that where it's like connected to the actual house? I was pumped. And it was a beautiful sunny day in the summer. I was ready to put some shots up, get the front yard training camp going. And I don't know about you, but my driveway was actually slanted, and so the closer you were, you know, it was actually a 10-foot hoop, but then as you got deeper, you had to put a little more oomph on the ball to get it the right height, and uh, so I had to calibrate my shot, right? So I'm starting right up next to it, calibrating my shot, nice easy one, swish, perfect. Take one step back, yeah? Okay, I'm calibrating this thing. It's gold. It's, it's all going in right now. I'm, I'm starting to lock in, taking a couple more shots, feeling good, and then I'm feeling, feeling like I want to take some more clever shots. So I've got my signature one. I'm ready. I'm in the zone. So I do my nice through the legs step back, and I want to do off the glass this time, you know, a little backboard action. So I take one, comes off the fingers real nice, perfect rotation. The arc is looking real good, right off the glass, exactly how I want it to go, through the hoop, swish. Okay, it begins to fall, but something else decides to fall right alongside the ball. I don't know what it is yet. I'm curious. Something has fallen maybe from the hoop or something. I don't know what it is, so I'm walking up here. I'm in elementary school. I'm curious, trying to learn my surroundings. There's something on the ground in front of me. Something had fallen. It didn't bounce. No, it splattered. It was a bird's egg. Yeah, killed the mood instantly. I was super sad. I couldn't believe what had just happened. Totally killed the mood. And I look up. I was like, what has happened? I looked up, and in between the backboard and the garage, there's those brackets that connected the hoop to the backboard. And I come to find out that a, a family of birds had made their nest in those brackets. Real cute, but really, really devastating for that family. Okay, here's what I learned. Tough. Here's what I learned. Valuable lesson that it takes a very long time for the sun to cook an egg on the pavement, but it tastes really good. No, I'm joking. I didn't eat it. I didn't eat it. No, that's not what I learned. Here's actually what I learned. It really matters where you want to build your house. 
A place can look really nice and cozy until a punk with a basketball comes along and ruins where your house is. It matters in other places too. It matters where you build your house, okay? Here's where I'm going tonight, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. You guys can flip there right now. If you've got a Bible, would love for you to open it up with me. We're talking about houses today. All right, let's read together Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Jesus is just wrapping up his famous Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It matters where you build your house. So here we've got Jesus, and he's closing out his Sermon on the Mount. He had been speaking to an amazing amount of people about his amazing teachings, And this is how he closes. He's got a lovely illustration to make it very clear for us. We've got two houses, two builders, two storms, and two outcomes, right? The the wise man, he heard the words, and he did them. He built on a firm foundation. He built well. So the storm came, but the house remained because it was built on a great foundation. But the foolish man... He heard the words. He did not do them. He chose to build his house on the sand. Wishy, washy, shaky foundation. He built poorly. The storm came and it beat against the house and it fell. It says the fall was great. So what's actually the difference between these two builders? Yes, one builds on the rock. Yes, one builds on the sand. But this isn't actually literal. This is the This is the imagery that he's trying to make for us, right? So what's actually different about these? That the wise man did the teachings of Jesus. He he wasn't just a hearer only, but the foolish person was a hearer only. He heard and did not do. It's pretty straightforward, right? If you want to live a good life and if you want a house that will stand through the storm, Hear the teachings of Jesus and do them. You might be thinking, why is Jesus saying this? It's love that he's saying this. It's kindness that he's making it so clear. Why would it be so kind for him to point out a fault? It's because Jesus loves you enough to expose a fault in your house and call for a rebuild. He knows that your house won't stay standing unless you build it on the rock. It is love that addresses the issue, love that lets you in on the reality that the house is going to get washed up in the waves. I was thinking about a doctor, okay? If you're at the doctor's office and you're sitting in the waiting room, you had been 
there to get some tests done, seeing what's going on. And the doctor goes back in the hallway and starts talking with the nurse, and they've got their test results. And it's a bad diagnosis. Some bad news is coming your way. But then the doctor and the nurse start chatting in the hallway, and they're like, ah, man, I don't know if he's going to really like the sound of this. I don't know if he's really going to be pumped that he's got this bad diagnosis coming, so maybe we should just keep this a secret between us. Maybe we shouldn't tell him that there's bad news. We should just let him go on and have a sweet day. Let him off easy, right? So they don't tell you. They don't tell you the bad diagnosis. It's a bad doctor, right? A bad doctor to not give you it straightforward. Give me the bad news so that I have a chance to medicate. Give me the diagnosis so I have a chance to respond. Guys, it's love that shares a diagnosis. And you, me, we're sick. We're very sick. That's what Jesus is addressing here, that we're sick with the thought that I know what's best for me. Sick with the thought that I can do this on my own, that I know where to build my house. And it shows up in everything we do. Every avenue of our life, every relationship that we have, sick with sin. It's sin that is lethal. And so Jesus is loving you by telling you this. If you build your house on the sand, if you hear his words and deny them, you will fall. But just like a good doctor, Jesus has a solution. You see, he's got a next right thing. He's in, in fact, he's for you enough that he's going to present you with a choice. He's not condemning you. He's giving you the chance at life. He's not against you because of your sin. He's with you against your sin. He hates the pain that the disease has caused. He hates the division, the hurt, the jealousy, the anger, the anxiety that sin has caused. He's with you against your sin. And so here's the solution, a new house, a new creation, not just some more tasks to accomplish, not just a new people for you to fit in with, but an entirely transformed self. You're invited to be completely renewed in mind, heart, and in hands by Jesus, remade, rebuilt on him. The rock, on his teachings, on his personhood. Because if it's the house that crumbles, the one that says, I know what's best for me, then it's the house that stands that says, Jesus knows what's best for me. That's what this is all about. You can be a new creation in Christ. You can have a solid foundation if you would finally say, hey, Jesus knows what's best for me. So this is the good foundation. Seeing Jesus as beautiful and walking in obedience. Man, that's how you build 
a house that will stand. So for tonight, the rest of our time, I want to talk about three things that we hear but we don't do, right? If the house that is built by the foolish one is the one that builds, sorry, if the foolish builder hears and does not do, I think there's at least a little bit of that in us where we hear, but we don't do. So tonight, three things that we say, hey, I know what's best for me, and I hope that as we do this, we're just going to see the beauty of Jesus and be moved to follow his example. So let's start with the first. First of three ways that we hear but we don't do, if you would go to Matthew 6, 5 and 6, this is just probably one page back from our previous text. Jesus is talking about prayer here. Matthew 6, 5 through 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Question for you. What is your relationship with God look like when nobody's watching? When the door is closed, what are you saying to God? Are you saying anything? I think it's pretty easy to get kind of caught up in a religious game that makes you believe, man, the value of being a Christian is really just what other people think. It's if they know I'm a Christian or not. It's if their perception of me is what I want it to be. That godliness is only helpful when everybody knows that I'm godly. Maybe the way that you've built your house is on the approval of others. And so you pray to seem mature or thoughtful or superior or wise. Maybe you love praying with other people because it's that opportunity to flex some of that Bible knowledge that you got. And you know that you're just clawing for the subtle, mm, that's good. So you pray that others would delight in you, right? Instead of praying to delight in God. Hear this. God doesn't want words all carefully crafted. He wants your true, honest, whole self. Not just words to puff up. He wants intimacy with you. He's not going to be impressed by just a flash of Bible. He wants all of you just as you are. And so here is the blueprint for Jesus' rebuild, that prayer and worship and community would not be for impressing other people, but for delighting in God and encouraging those around you, not clawing for their approval. Man. I want this for you so bad, a private, personal relationship with God where you just want time with him. You want time with him because you know how much he loves time with you. It's not about showing others how amazing you are. It's about delighting in the Father and seeking him. 
You guys ever walk by one of those big glass buildings on campus or in downtown where they've got just massive windows? I was walking by one the other day, and I was just kind of fascinated with what happened. So I was walking, and from a distance, the sun hits just the right way so that all you can see is your reflection, right? You're walking by it, and all you see is looking right back at you. It's basically a mirror. But when you get nice and close to it, you can stand right up next to it. You can actually put your hand over your peripherals, block out the distractions, and then whoop. It's a clear picture you see all the way inside. When at one point, from a distance, all you could see was yourself. It was just a mirror reflection. But then you get close enough, and it's it's a whole new world. Guys, I think prayer can be like this, where when we keep God at a distance, when we keep genuine prayer at a distance, all it is is a mirror because it's all about ourselves, isn't it? But when you get close enough, when you realize that God is near and that's what it's about, it opens up a whole new world. It's awesome. It makes you want more of it. Jesus did this without flaw. It was amazing to me the first couple times that I was reading how Jesus would actually live. This is the thing that amazed me. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, keep track of the number of times that it says Jesus went off to be by himself and pray. It was crazy. Homie would scoot off into the wilderness right after just mega moments in his life. He was healing people of diseases. He was preaching these awesome sermons. And then right when everybody was trying to find him and, and like, man, raise him on a throne, he'd be gone. Nobody could find this guy. He was off in the wilderness, delighting in time with the Father. Why would he do this? I think Jesus knew something that, that we need to internalize, that the big crowds, the fame, All the attention, that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point of the good works. That wasn't the point of what he was up to. It was delighting in the Father so much. He didn't need other people to see it. The whole point was intimacy with the Father, which is what you're invited into as well. Would you see that pattern of life and say, man, I want that too. You can be transformed by the approval of God that you no longer need to claw for the approval of others. Man, I think that this would change things super practically. When it comes to prayer, I think this would radically change even what ordinary life could look like. Maybe your dorm room could be transformed from a place of loneliness and a place of isolation into the new hangout spot for you and God. Because every time that you're alone, you know that you're actually invited into an awesome moment with the creator of the universe. Man, that could be sweet. What if our C groups actually came to life with honest prayers? 
What if because we were not, not distracted by, man, do I have all the right answers for them or do I have all the right prayers for them, all the right language, maybe people would be more, more willing to like share the honest junk that's going on because we weren't worried about how we were responding or how we were praying, but we were actually just ready to listen. The same way that the Father listens to us in prayer, we can extend that ear to them and care with deep compassion. Guys, this is the rebuild that Jesus has in mind. Truly embracing his love for us so that we would have true selfless love for them, undistracted with self in prayer, but just wanting to delight in God. This is the house that will not go down in the storm. Okay, let's talk about the second way we hear but don't do. Flip back one more chapter. This is Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He's talking about reconciliation here. So if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come. And offer your gift. Okay, so the altar was a place where people would bring gifts and sacrifices in order to cleanse them of their sin. To reconcile them with God. They, they knew they had messed up. They needed to be cleansed with their offering. But Jesus says, hey, before you give the gift at the altar, go and, and own up to the friction between you and your buddy. Your actions didn't just affect the vertical relationship between you and God, but actually it sent out waves of impact to the people around you. Because the curse of sin did not just separate us from God, it also created division and brokenness in every relationship. So we can't only acknowledge that distance vertically, but we ought to acknowledge the distance that it has created horizontally with the people around us. And so we build a shaky foundation. We use peace with God as an excuse to leave friends in the wake of our mistakes. When there's conflict or friction or pain, we can just brush it under the rug and then show up to Salt Company and sing worship songs. But this is kind of missing the point, isn't it? Kind of missing the point of the gospel message, the point of the cross. You see, the cross shows the cost of reconciliation. The cost of restoring a relationship. Because all of us were by nature enemies with God. There was a rift between us and God. We had set ourselves as the rulers of our own life and had ignored God as wise and as creator. But because God so loved the world, because God so loved you, he sent his only son to live, to serve, to die, and to be raised so that anybody who would come to him would be able to have eternal life. In him, now and forever, not even death would be able to change that about you. 
You see, God pursued us in reconciliation by leaving heaven and enduring death. He died so that we would die to sin. And he was raised so that we would have life in him, new life. Life summed up in one word, peace. Peace with God. Life as it should, by, should be. So when you identify with Jesus, there's no condemnation. The relationship has been fully restored. There has been peace with God. Now this status between you and God makes, makes us all the more willing to actually pursue peace in messy situations with people around you. So no matter the severity of the wound, how bitter the moment would be. We can know that because we were enemies with God and yet he stepped in and pursued peace, that no rift in our life, no matter how bitter the moment, no reconciliation would be more scandalous than what God did for us. While we were enemies with God, he suffered for you. And so this is what it looks like to build your foundation on the teachings of Jesus, to pursue reconciliation, to be like him in his pursuit, is to be reconciled with God and a peacemaker with others. Man, maybe more simply, an action step now is have a hard conversation. That thing that's in your mind right now, like what is that hard conversation that might need to be had with a friend or a roommate. Maybe this is that time to own up to what you've been bottling up inside, right? The dishes. Jeez. That'll get everybody. Own up to the junk and move toward your neighbor in love. Because you know that a value, the value of a restored relationship is actually greater than the cost of what it takes to admit your mistake. So maybe it's time to have that hard conversation with the motive of peace. Take the hit and own up to the fact that you've been holding a grudge for something. This is you dropping your gift at the altar to pursue reconciliation. That's Jesus' rebuild. Guys, what if we started apologizing to people who didn't even expect it? What would that do? Talk about being salt, a preserving force of good. Apologizing for things that people aren't even expecting an apology for. Owning up to things that they don't even expect you to own up to. Man, what if you apologize to your professor about the things that they don't even know about. It's pretty easy to get homework answers online. So what would it look like to actually go up to them and say, after class, hey, professor, I, I knew you wouldn't find out. I don't know if you know about this or not, but it's been easy for me to actually just find homework answers online. And I just want to say I'm sorry. It's not honoring to the way you've taught, and it's not doing me any justice. And I just want to apologize because I realize the impact 
of my actions. I believe that Jesus forgives me, loves me, but he loves me enough to want me to own up to my mistakes. So here I am owning up. I'm sorry. What would that do to our campus, to our city? Man, this is a rebuild that Jesus has in mind. Restoring relationships. Knowing the reconciliation of God so deep in our bones that it moves us to make peace with other people around us. That is the house that won't get washed up in the waves. Third thing that we hear but we don't do. Favoritism. Matthew 5, 46 through 47. This is that same chapter. This is what Jesus says. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Loving those who love you back. I'm pretty good at that. I don't know about you. But it's like, if you're anything like me, it's really easy, feels really good to love the people that you know are going to reciprocate that same thing back to you, right? It feels good to show up to somewhere and only say, how's it going to the guys that you've got history with? Only say what's up to the guys that you know are going to dap you up right back. It makes a lot of sense to put energy into the people that you know are going to reciprocate the same. Feels really good to ignore the person that's hard to talk to. Feels really good to walk right past the person that's awkward to invest in and put on that big smile to the new guys, the cool guys that walk in to the room. Or maybe you find yourself, man, talking to somebody in the lobby, but you're so busy, so preoccupied, looking around the room to see what everybody else is up to that you just miss what they just said to you in your conversation. I did that last week, and it felt awful. So preoccupied with what everybody else was doing that I was missing this opportunity to love somebody right in front of me. Okay, that's what Jesus is calling out here. Loving the people who love you, it's not as rewarding as you think. And I think Jesus just sees something that we don't. He sees people as people and not as objects for our own social gain. He knew that using people doesn't actually work out in the end. It just ruins the whole thing. And this honestly just reminded me of what it was like growing up in the Miller house with my little brother. So he's about five years younger than I am. And when we were in elementary school, we had a trampoline out back. It was legendary. But funny thing, older brother, classic, I would turn everything into a wrestling match onto the trampoline. So what happened? Man, I would use every game as an opportunity to just like tackle Jacob, and he hated it so much. I was just using him to like express my small man syndrome to like tackle this guy and feel tough, you know? It got tough because my mom hated it just as much as my brother did. 
And at one point, she threatened to not let me go see Toy Story 3 in theaters. That really got me. That one really got me. But eventually, the tackling would continue, and I would continue to just use him to feel like I could dominate something, right? What happened in the end? Well, of course, Jacob hated going on the trampoline. He didn't want to play anymore because I was just using him for my own enjoyment instead of enjoying his company, enjoying what he could bring to the table, asking how he wanted to jump on the trampoline, right? Man, using people as objects for your gain won't actually give you anything. It will just feed your ego and kill your relationships. If Jesus walked into Salt Company on a Thursday, I think we would all just be amazed at who he would run to. Watching him move throughout the room. I don't know exactly, but I think he would head straight to the one who feels like they're the outsider. He would be able to see it. He's so unconcerned with his status that it frees him up to be available for the outsider. That's who Jesus is. So awesome. So free to serve. Guys, I feel like this was just helpful for me to hear because I do this on a Thursday. I'm coming in looking for the people that I think are going to make me look better, make me feel better about myself because it's like, man, I can find the ones that when I'm around them, it makes it look like I'm having a great time, you know? More likely to hang around the people who know me already, more likely to hang around the guys that I've um, got history with. But Jesus is saying, hey, how is that different from the world? How is that different from those who don't know me? How is a space when we are all concerned about our own self-image, how is that any different from the bar out on Washington? If all we're concerned about is our own image, we could strip back all of the other stuff, and if that's what would be revealed in this place, then we would just be shown up to be as messed up as the next guy, right? This is why we need a rebuild from Jesus, to be able to, to, be, able to be free from that need to associate things with us. When you look at Jesus' life, the, the people that he associated with, you look at the people that he was drawn to, the outcasts, the sinners, the people that everybody else was spitting on. He was free from manufacturing his public image. That's what made him so beautiful and so truly free to serve. And it was amazing. There's this really sweet book by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I commend it to you. You could honestly read it in like an afternoon because it's nice and short, but it packs a punch. Here's a quote from that book. Tim says, Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? 
True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. That sounds nice. The freedom from the need to associate everything with myself. The freedom to not need to connect with those people that make me feel good. The freedom to pursue deep friendship with whoever is put in front of me. Man, that's what it means to be free in Christ. To be so secure in who you are in him. A son of God. Fully loved. So much so that I don't need to pursue that in other spheres. Man, I want to be more like that. I want Salt Company to be more like that. And we will if we build our house on the rock of Jesus. He knows what's best for us. He knows how to build a house that won't go down in the storm. All right, I'm going to close with this. Guys, a couple years ago, I was able to embark on this really sweet project with my dad. My parents had got this property up north, and it was a forest at first. It was just a property with a bunch of trees, so we were the trailblazers. And one of the first projects that we had was after we cleared out this road, we picked a spot right on top of this hill where you could look out and you could see the lake like peeking through the trees as the leaves would fall. Because we went up in October and we picked this spot. We were going to build a little tiny cottage, a little 8 by 12. That is very small, 8 foot by 12 foot, very small, but exactly what you need to get that property going. And so me and my dad, we went up in October just for one weekend. We are going to build this thing. So we dug up some of the land. We laid some of this foundation built a frame, put up the walls, the roof, sealed it up real nice. We'd end each day, nice bowl of soup, sleep like rocks because we were working hard. But guys, that, tr- that trip, that project was so memorable and one of my favorite things that I've done with my dad to date. But it was honestly really fun except for one part. It was laying that foundation putting those cement pillars, making sure it was all even, it was all square, perfect angles, perfectly level. Honestly, it kind of sucked. Took majority of our time was on just laying the foundation. The rest of the project didn't take that much longer. Okay, here's what I'm saying. It is super fun. Really awesome to enjoy gospel-centered community, to enjoy this season of life in college. But the thing that is important is building the foundation in who Jesus is, to see him as beautiful and to walk in obedience. Because just with that tiny cottage, the most important thing of all was the foundation. If it wasn't square, If it wasn't level, the walls would have been out of whack. The whole thing would have been on a tilt. 
And so it is with our community. We need to be on the same page of Jesus, that he is beautiful and worthy of being followed. And then let's do it. Let's follow him together. Let's follow him together. Would you pray with me as I close? God, thanks for seeing us in our state and giving it to us straight, saying, hey, your house is going to fall without me. So would you build it on a rock? God, thanks for the sweet example that you gave us in Jesus. Where he lived the life that we couldn't. So free from self, so free from sin that you were able to see perfectly how to live and serve. Man, what a beautiful person you are, Jesus. I pray that we would see you rightly and and see your invitation to new life, to become a new creation in you. And we would say, yes, that's where I want to build my house. That's the foundation that I want for my life. Because Jesus, you know what's best for us. I don't know what's best for me. God, would that be our prayer tonight in this whole room? I pray that as these songs go, that we would see you as beautiful. We would lift your name. That you are a firm foundation. Something that is not going to get destroyed or tossed when the storm comes. God, we love you so much. We're thankful for this opportunity to gather as a community. Would you build us up in faith? Pray this in your name.